Hi, I'm Willie Miller. Hi, I'm Seth Coe. I'm Taylor Nutter. Hello, I'm Jonathan Magnew. Hi, it's Grant Haggerty. Hi, I'm Sharon Green from the Wallery. I'm Azuma Nelson. I'm Gashin and you're listening to Not the Foolish. Yes, you are indeed listening to another podcast of Not The Footy Show. And as usual, we've got a great guest lined up. He is the co-author of a new book that is just being launched this week called Burning Ambition, The Centenary of Australia-New Zealand Football Ashes. And there were two authors, Trevor Thompson, but we're catching up with his co-author, Nick Gort. And that will be later in the show. But we're going to be talking a fair amount of football on this particular podcast. But I'm Ashley Morrison. And I'm John Lee. John, good to be back. Yes, it is. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you very much. You had a very fine sporting couple of weeks since we last spoke. Ah, not bad. I've been keeping myself busy trying to edit my documentary, which has got to come out by September. But we've got, I've got the final draft of it. Have to go through it. And we're recording the voiceover next week. So. And you've got a couple of docos up on... Oh, yes, yeah, Standing at the Touchlines. We've yeah. just put that up. Uh, that was, of course, about the 2010 FIFA World Cup, where we travelled through Africa. And uh, I just thought, well, it's World Cup year. And uh, we made it, what is it now, 10 years, 12 yeah. years ago. And it was quite good, quite good to revisit it, actually, in that <laughs> um, I watched it back myself. And I went, oh, it's not as bad as I thought it was. Is this the director's cut? It's is just there the, any extras in this one? No, nah, there's not. We the just Blue put it Ray exactly special. as it is. I mean, it was funny. There were, some of the clips I used to promote it on Facebook were not in the film. Okay. Um, and there were a few bits I thought about putting up, but uh, I sort of left it. I mean, I, I've been toying with the interview with Neil Lamptey one day, showing that in full. But I'm trying to convince him to let me write his uh, autobiography. Uh, so okay. I thought, mm, I might wait for that one. When's the, is the Matilda's one up there? Not yet, no. But it okay. will be. We were looking Kaya to put Simon that up. Um, Kai Simon and Lydia Williams, really? yeah. We were looking to put that up uh, probably next month, but I think I'm going to push it to later in the year uh, as people are getting excited about Australia and New Zealand hoping they're hosting the Women's World Cup next year. Good idea. You're going to kick us off. I am indeed. Well, first of all, I'm going to say congratulations to the Socceroos and all involved for qualifying for Qatar 2022. Great for the players and for the sport. I well, I hope it's great for the sport. I worry actually because I think the sport needed to kick up the backside um, because I mean they get now nine million US dollars for qualifying. Um, where's that money going to go? That is the big interest, uh, big question because already there's a story come out that most of it's been spent on bonuses, flying the team to Qatar, accommodation, training facilities, and all of this player bonuses. Yep, as okay. well. Fair enough. Now, we know back in 2006, the whole lot was gone on all of that. Yeah. And for, don't forget, of course, they leased an aircraft to fly to Uruguay and back with the oxygen uh, so that they would be fit for the game in Sydney. Now, that cost them, again, half a million. Um, so, But I just think that the FFA, if they're going to change the trend that is there in Australian football at the moment, they need to put some aside, and this is my suggestion, is and donate, say, a million, or may, if, if there's more, even better, that will make sure that kids who cannot afford to play at the moment because the fees are too expensive get the chance to play for free um, so that we start returning the game back to the man on the street rather than having just those who can afford to play pay playing. Well, that's been one of the great strengths of football as a sport is the fact that it's no different... The game is exactly the same when three kids down the park play it as it is when they play at Wembley Stadium for an FA Cup final or something like that. 
But this wasn't the topic I wanted to get on. My right. topic, though, is we saw in 1994 the World Cup was finals were 24 teams. And I, for one, can put my hand up and say I watched every single game during this. 94 was. 94 was in the USA. It was the last one in the USA. 98, it went to 32 teams. And now a lot of my friends who, again, used to watch every single game, now go, it's too hard to watch. It's too many games to watch in a month. You just cannot keep up with it. So you have to sort of cherry pick. Especially if you're not in the right time time zone. zone. (laughs) So then you have to cherry pick. Now, what worries me is... Australia have qualified, so no doubt they deserve to be there. They met the criteria, but how good are they? Are they good enough to be at the World Cup? And my comment now would be no, because their qualifying has been really ugly. They haven't played particularly well, and I still say they are not a very good team. And if we look at their form also in World Cup since 2006, and it's quite shocking when you consider it, John, because everyone goes, oh, 2006, you know, we got out of the pool, got into the round of 16. But they only won one game there. And they've only won one game since, on June the 23rd, 2010, against Serbia in South Africa. So they've won two games in 13 World Cup matches since 2006. And if you go back to 74, they've won two games in 16 World Cup games. Now, Gianni Infantino wants to expand the World Cup, and in fact, it's going to happen in 2026. It's going to 48 teams. Now, if you've got a team like Australia, who at the moment are poor, very, very poor, can't win games at the World Cup, that's proven now with those stats, you're going to increase that. You're going to make the tournament, to me, you're going to downgrade. It's not going to be about the best teams in the world competing, and it's really going to, I think, damage the product and your viewership as well. I think we've got to step back for a second and just remember that the World Cup tournament runs for a couple of years. The World Cup tournament isn't just no, that final but month the World of Cup competition. Finals. They, they are, and that's the yeah. they are the finals. So everybody's got the chance to play in the World Cup. Exactly. There's, there's, everybody does. You play a qualifying game, you are playing in the World Cup. Well, every FIFA registered country plays in it. Yeah. yeah. So it's not like countries don't have opportunity to play in the World Cup. Because that's why... But to get to the final, there's yeah. a reason they call it finals. <laughs> and it's supposed to be the best of the best. Yeah, because, I mean, Viv Richards, the cricketer, or Sir Vivian Richards as he is now, of course, his claim to fame was he played in a World Cup qualifier for Antigua. So he is a World Cup footballer. Yeah. Um, yeah. And rightly so. But, yeah, I just sort of think... The finals, you've got to keep them special. You've got to have it Mm. just for the best teams. And I think when we went to, or football went to 32 teams in 98, suddenly you weren't getting the best teams there. And and I've had this argument before, and we've discussed it, I know, in the past, is we're seeing qualifications from confederations. And I, I don't think now, the way the world is today, I don't think we need to do it that way. I think you could actually have a draw where you pull teams from all around the world, and again, just as they do in the finals where you have seeded teams, and why can't you have a qualifying group that has maybe a team from America, a team from Africa, team two teams from Europe and one from Oceania? Are we talking pulling te- ping-pong balls out of a barrel sort of thing? Well, I don't mind. I mean, of course, I'd, yeah, I just think you could draw them that way. So but, of you, course, you as we've have... heard from Michel Platini, it was fixed in 98 to make sure that France and Brazil met in the final. He came out in the last few days and admitted that. So you could have Brazil playing and Antigua then? 
Yeah, you could have. In a World Cup qualifier. I mean, the other thing you could seed is, you could do, of course, is seed the top 20 and say, look, you don't come in in the first round, you come in the second round of qualifying. I think you're right. That that number of teams is far, far too many for a, a finals. Yeah, and, and, I, and I, you, I, don't, I, you don't want teams getting flogged 7-0. Even, in, even when it's Brazil and, and Germany in the final, you don't want them losing 7-0. But, but you look, okay, everyone's euphoric at the moment because Australia's qualified again for its fifth World Cup finals. They've got in their group Tunisia... France and Denmark. Now, this is a say. If I, group of let, death, Ashley. Group of death. Oh, gosh. But, it, it, I mean, if you look at it, John, and it, this is team, and it, it, they may improve in the next few months. I don't know. I don't think they will. But they potentially could get thrashed. So, where is it good that financially they've got nine million coming from FIFA because they've qualified for the World Cup? What damage is it going to do the Socceroos in the long term? if they get spanked, as you say, when they get there and they end up on the wrong side of a 4 or 5 nil defeat in all three games? Do you reckon FFA cares no. whether they get beaten or not? Because no. they're there. They're going to get their money. They get a bit more money if they win a couple of games and progress, don't they? Yeah, I, so I you think. Get to the, the and, next and let's stage, be honest, it's a bit more. Yeah, and a lot of the administrators are rubbing their hands together now going, oh, fantastic, I've got a trip to Qatar. Yeah. Oh, great. Spend it inside all the time. You might as well just sit in your lounge room with the air conditioning on. <laughs> really? Yeah, maybe. Um, Australia's chances? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, look. I mean, I'm, Sorry. I'm I, did, I did mention the, the pool of death. They will not get out of that pool. I, I've, been, I've been waiting for I've heard one reference to the pool of death. So far, journalists have st- stayed away from it, which I'm really pleased with because... You hate which, that. Which, pool, which of the pools... At the World Cup is not the pool of death. Well, yeah, unless you because it's seeded. Yeah. So you're you're always going to get in your pool someone from the say top eight in the world, the top eight qualifiers in the world. You're going to have one of them. And I don't know where which of the top eight countries in the world do you want to play against. Which one do you reckon you've got a chance against? You know, like it's just it does not meet any logical criteria. They're all pools of death when you're Australia. Or when you're Costa Rica, or when you're one of the lowest low, all of them are a pool of death. I think we also have to just, one thing before we wrap this up, John, is let's not remember, let's not forget, sorry, that this was the World Cup Australia was hoping to host. It now, was. how, is it a relief that we're not hosting it with the team we've got? Or, you know, imagine what pool we could have been in then, as a host nation, and not had to qualify. Yeah. That would have been interesting. Yeah, well, maybe we could have done a platini and made sure that we met Brazil in, you know, in the final. Yeah, it was interesting the other day. Though I heard an interview after the Australia qualified, and it was with Mark Bosnich and a journalist who is an old school sports journalist in this town, um, known for his cricket and football writing, AFL football writing. Um, posed the question, "Can we win it?" to Bosnich, and he just straight up said, "No." Nah, no, we can't. And immediately the return fire question was, well, then why do we go? And that shows you yeah. some of the, um, it's, it's not quite biased, but the mindset of a lot of sports journalists, older sports journalists in this country towards football. Or why are we going? I don't hear you making the same argument about Olympians that aren't going to win. Yeah. <laughs> and probably, you know, they're, they're just scraping into the bottom. You don't make that argument for them. Or why are you, why are you competing? 
I mean, so it's interesting that, that that's an attitude that still exists. But but it's funny. I mean, you were talking before we went on air about some of the great players, and George Best's name came up. Now, yeah. one of his biggest regrets was that Northern Ireland never went to a World Cup. He never oh, they got. Did. They never got to the finals. Now, Northern Ireland. Oh yes, but they they they. They 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 played qualifying games. I oh yeah, sorry. They, the finals. That, they did. Yeah, 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 sorry. Yeah, you're picking me up on that one. Good one. <laughs> um, but yeah, did not play in a World Cup finals, and so. You know, he never played in a World Cup finals, I think. And so, you know, that was something missing from his career. And it's something that every player wants to do is perform at a World Cup finals, if they can. And it's almost like, you know, we're trying to um, uh, manipulate the fact that some people are just not born in the right place at the right time. You can't help when you're born, where you're born, and at what time you're born. So you can't artificially create opportunities just because X, Y country has a really, really great player that deserves to be at the World Cup. No. You, know, it's, it, you can't bring it down to that individual level when you're organising events such as that. Oh, exactly. I mean, it's just... You well, know. you know, obviously what football can do to give these lesser nations um, more of a chance of winning... Um, is to develop, say, a five-a-side format. Uh, that, that seems to work, creating five-a-side formats out of the blue to create opportunities for lesser nations to win because, you know, the big nations aren't going to be interested in playing five-a-side, are they, Matt? Are they, Ashley? No, probably not. But I, I just wanted to say, because Northern Ireland, we gave the impression that they've not been to a, um, a World Cup Finals. They have actually been to World Cup Finals, but not, not during you. George Best's yeah, time. Yeah. So they were in 58, uh, they, they were there, and also uh, 82 and 86, I believe, I think, from memory. But um, How is the World Cup affected by this Nations League thing going on? I'm not sure. I don't think will it is. It, in the longer term, will it take away some of the gloss and glory? Because these, the more international football you play, the less meaning there is to international games. That's one of the problems hockey has, is overabundance of international games that mean nothing. And they mean nothing to the fans either. And the whole thing about international football is getting the fans engaged for supporting your country. And if your country's playing every second week, how much excitement can you possibly generate to get fans along? When it's, this is your only chance this year to see your national team in action, you're going to go along. Yeah, I mean, it was interesting. I was having a conversation with, with um, I need to be careful how I phrase this, somebody that is involved in the FIH Pro League, and they actually were saying to me, they don't, they're involved in it. They said they don't watch them unless the games that they're involved in, and they just said, don't know when they're being played. It's a pointless competition because it has no reason for being, and, and exactly like you're saying, it's, so it's, it's just lost interest in it. Well, it, it does have a reason for being, especially because it's tied to World Cup qualification and, and Olympic qualification. So there's an Olympic qualifying component within the Pro League. Yeah. So that means you get funding for it because it's part of your Olympic qualification process. But it, it's such a loose thing with the Olympic qualification. Well, it because, is. All that, but because all they have all to that, do yeah. is tie it. They only have to tie yeah. it to it. I agree with you. It's, it, because it, those teams, if they were playing in another tournament would probably qualify based on their world rankings. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It's just an extra way to try and squeeze more money. But then again, it goes back to the point we're making with football, is are you having this 
do you want your best teams at the World Cup finals and Olympics, or do you want those that just qualify? No, you want you want your best teams there. Yeah. And and that's what this whole makes a joke of this whole idea of giving. Oh, it'll give lesser nations an opportunity. Well, it won't. It'll only ever give the best nations, regardless of your size. You know, Australia is a very small country, you know, 24, 25 million people, and yet we consistently perform at major international hockey tournaments over nations that have far more resources and far better infrastructure or far better ability to set up competitive interest infrastructures within their countries. And far more players, are we? Far more players. Yet, So how come we're so successful? So... Just because you're a little nation doesn't mean you can't be successful at any given sport if you try hard. So look at New Zealand. Yeah, exactly. There, if ever you wanted to look at a nation that yeah. punches well above its weight in relation to its population, yeah. they're a prime example. But, uh, yeah, it's interesting. It's, it's going to be a challenge, but I just think you've got to be careful. If you dilute it too much, you lose people. Hi, I'm Olympian Adrian D'Souza from India and you are listening to Not The Footy Show. Well, as I mentioned at the top of the show, there is a new book that's come out called Burning Ambition and it is about the centenary of Australia-New Zealand football ashes, the first ever international being played back in 1922. And the book is being launched this week and I was lucky to catch up just in the last week or so before it came out, and in fact before Australia played its World Cup qualifier with one of the co-authors, Nick Gort. Nick Gort, welcome to Not The Footy Show. Thank you very much for inviting me. Now, well, it's good to catch up with you, and uh, we're going to be talking about your book, Burning Ambition, uh, which you've actually co-authored with Trevor Thompson. And I was wondering... How do you co-author a book? And then I hear that you're both in different countries, which I think must make it even harder. Well, I think COVID has a lot of responsibility here as well. Uh, Trevor, Trevor contacted me prior to COVID, so in 2019, and we met with the publisher, uh, Benita Merciades, uh, for just a coffee and just an idea, get some ideas about this book. And, and then I went back to London and all of a sudden COVID hit and I wasn't able to come back here. So we were in a situation where we had to manoeuvre within time zones, sometimes nine hours apart, sometimes 11 hours apart. And it would be my morning session and, and Trevor's evening session. So he, he would just have had his evening meal and he would be sitting down and we'd chat and I would have had breakfast and we would be chatting as well. So, so yes, it, Two to three hour sessions, just going through things. It was, it was certainly quite different to be able to do and to put together a, a book with uh, uh, such a wide distance and time zones between us. But it's, it's not really that hard. And we both were able to do certain little bits here and there and put it together chapters. So Trevor would do one chapter, I would do another chapter and we'd look over each other's chapters and be able to, to bring them together. Uh, and eventually put him into a book. Of course, when we first had the initial part of the the, the draft of the, the book, there were chapters here and there and all over the place. And so, so these meetings allowed us to to bring them together into a more coherent version of the book and what we what you see as a final version. 
Now, the book itself is about Australia's first ever football international against New Zealand. I mean, how did that idea come up? And was it a case of you and Trevor were sitting having a beer or something and suddenly went, oh, this is a good idea? Well, I had actually done a little bit of research on the uh, trip to New Zealand back in 2006. And Trevor and I knew each other from quite some way back from the old NSL days and and the A-League uh, as journalists, because I'd done some journalist work uh, for various newspapers in, in Sydney and Wollongong. So so therefore, he, he knew my connections to the tour, and that's how we were able to, to get together, and that's why uh, he invited. Trevor also had written a, a book in relation to um, the Asian context for Australia, and a, an amount of that book came from the Masters, my my own master's um, thesis. So we, we we already had a fairly strong connection prior to then. And I mean, the, the, the book, I noticed it was saying that it was called, kind of called The Ashes uh, then. Was that a name you gave it or was it actually called that back then? Uh, the, the, the matches between Australia and New Zealand were for The Ashes. And The Ashes actually continued to be contested until at least the 1950s. There's no real proof that it passed on after that and who still has the the ashes. So the ashes, uh, after the first test in Brisbane in the 1923 return series, the two captains, Alec Gibb and George uh, Campbell, got together and decided to put to create this ashes, which was uh, an actual box um, made of specific types of woods that came from both New Zealand and Australia. And the ashes of their, well, the story goes it was the ashes of the two cigars that they were smoking that was put inside this box. And that, that box continued to be, to travel between the two countries. So the ashes series continued through, uh, the, in the 1930s and the 19, uh, up to the 1950s. Australia uh, although New Zealand won the series in 1922 and in 1923, uh, Australia eventually took over in the 30s as being the dominant nation. And they held the ashes, even though they took it across to New Zealand when they travelled to New Zealand or when New Zealanders came to Australia, they had the, the ashes here. So uh, around sometime around the mid-1950s, the box seems to have disappeared. We don't know where it is. But basically... The idea of the ashes continued throughout the, the 20s and 30s. It'd be great to refine it. I just wonder whether, you know, Australians' custom laws, you're not allowed to bring wooden items in, whether <laughs> customs have got it stashed away somewhere. Well, that may be true too these days. Uh, certainly in those days, you can move anything anywhere. But yes, yes, the <clears throat> taking, a, taking a box with, uh, with ashes, etc., from one country to another may pose a slight problem. I mean, how how difficult was it to find information on these games? Because, you know, sometimes when you're going back, yes, there are newspaper reports, but then finding information on the actual players or the characters that would bring the book alive must be much, much harder. Certainly, that that was a lot of fun. Uh, I had a number of books that I, uh, that I had in, in London of the... Uh, individual players who played for various clubs in, in England. So I was able to assist by obtaining the actual exact amount of games they played, etc. <clears throat> but the, uh, 
the bits and pieces in New Zealand and Australia of the various players, that was a lot of fun going back through the newspapers and attempting to locate who was who. And, of course, when, when the player is called Smith or Jones or something like that, it makes it much harder. So you need to look at various things that they might have done. Uh, and sometimes the first name was was written incorrectly in one place or another. So that also uh, created a bit of fun for trying to get. But we believe that we've been able to find information on every single player who participated in both, both for Australia and New Zealand uh, during those 1922 and 1923 series. Were, were there any players in those two groups of players that would have been sort of like standout names of that era? Or, or were they sort of, again, there wasn't that, media frenzy that we see today there was no no media media frenzies didn't really exist in those days i don't think so but there were players who who stood out and i I mentioned george campbell the new zealand captain he was he was the best player throughout the whole uh two series probably more in, in in australia in 1923 where for example in the in the final match he scored all four goals for new zealand to uh to, to to win the match four one so so he was a, a key member and he was also captain of the, of the teams but he was also a character and uh, Sydney Story who was the the assistant manager of the Australian team in New Zealand wrote a report and in his report he had a, a few interesting words that uh, he used to explain the the characteristics of the of Mr Campbell. Uh, that weren't the best, or weren't, certainly weren't glowing in, in his favour. Um, but, but, of course, Campbell sort of set it back to him when, when he scored these four goals in that final game. And he also scored most of the goals in the other matches as well. So he, he was a key player. For, for Australia, Alec Gibb, who became captain during the New Zealand series, so he wasn't initially the captain, he was the vice-captain. Um, Alan Fisher was the actual captain to start off with, but he uh, but after the first few uh, interprovincial matches against uh, provinces, um, Alan Fisher stepped down and Alec Gibb took over. And so for the first test and thereafter, Alec Gibb was the, was the captain. So Alec's from uh, from uh, central Queensland, well, not central, sorry, um, from Toowoomba area uh, in Queensland, and he became quite a quite an important player. Then you had uh, Bill Maunder, who um, is in the Australian uh, Football Hall of Fame. He was the scorer of the very first goal and beca- uh, for Australia and became quite um, famous because of that. Um, so there were a couple of players here and there. Um, <clears throat> there was Judy Masters, and Judy is a fascinating um, <clears throat> name to call someone, Judy Masters from, from the Wollongong area was also one of the key players in the in the 23 series and thereafter so there were some players here and there who were you could consider as being key players but of course the media didn't give them the the coverage that that you would get these days with say a Ronaldo or or someone like that no absolutely now I mean I've, I've read sort of a lot of the the sort of previews of the book and it said that this was a watershed moment for Australian football. Was that because suddenly it was on the international stage? And I would think back in that era, there wasn't, apart from sort of cricket, there wasn't that much international sport being played in this part of the world? Other than rugby league and rugby union, 
Yeah, uh, not really. Uh, there were the occasional tours from, from England, et cetera. But what it did was it, it allowed Australia to finally get involved in international sport, uh, in, in, in the football itself. So uh, New Zealand were able to play against New South Wales in, in a, a two, series, two series of matches in 1904 and 1905 as a nation itself but they only played New South Wales. In this event, uh, in 1922, this was the first time that an Australian national team had, had existed as itself uh, under the banner of Australia. <clears throat> and so, so it, it was a very important initial point for Australian football as a nation itself. And following the <clears throat> 1922 tour, Australia became the the nation with the most number of matches played by any nation over the next 10 years. So Australia were involved in series against China, against Canada, against uh, a team from the Czech Republic. They travelled to the um, to Indonesia, or what was called the Netherlands East Indies, Malaysia and Singapore. So they had a large number of matches that they played over the next 10 years, more than any other country in the world, apparently. So it, it was the beginning of something quite big for, for Australia. That's incredible when you hear that. Yeah, you wouldn't have expected that statistic to be uh, one that Australia can boast. Mm. And in, in, the book we actually, in the book, we actually bring out another first for Australia and New Zealand in that this match, uh, the, the match on uh, June the 17th, sorry, yeah, June the 17th, 1922, in Dunedin was the first international match between two countries where both teams wore numbers on the back of their shirts, something we just Take accept as being normal. And yet here we have two nations wearing the numbers on, on, on the backs of the shirts, playing against each other for the very first time in the world. The, the, the New Zealanders and Australians were both already wearing shirt, numbers on their shirts in, in provincial matches or in, st- or in state matches as New South Wales versus Queensland, etc., um, going back to the early 1900s. But this was the first time an international match occurred where two nations wore their numbers on the, on the backs of their shirts. So that oh, was a big... Incredible. Yeah. Yeah. That, and this is something that sort of goes past a lot of uh, people. Um, rugby union were already wearing numbers on the backs of the shirts from uh, in provincial or, or in local matches, certainly back to the late 19th century, and in, in and the All Blacks wore numbers on the backs of their shirts. But uh, when you look at football itself, I've I've contacted people from around the world, and and no other nations that we that we could find were wearing were wearing. Uh, numbers on the backs of their shirts. I mean, the question I've got there, because I think a lot of countries, when they did introduce numbers, they numbered both teams 1 to 22 rather than 1 to 11. So were Australia and New Zealand wearing 1 to 11? Uh, New Zealand were. Australia were, were wearing 1 to 16. So this was a very unusual situation where the players' numbers were given to them prior to arriving in New Zealand. And the numbers were based on alphabetical so so that the, the person with the, the lowest 
uh, um, who was A or B as their family name, had number one. So it wasn't the goalkeeper who had number one, but it was the, the uh, player with the earliest name in, in, in alphabetically. Wow. I mean, the other thing that I find incredible reading it up on, obviously, the book, and I, I'm waiting for my copy to arrive, actually, but um, is... You know, these guys all paid their own way to be there. So it was the old days where there was no kind of money in the coffers where they picked the best players, was it? Is it true that they had to raise the money themselves to get over to New Zealand? They, uh, there were a number of events that allowed them to raise money to get there. But basically, from the point when they arrived in New Zealand onwards, everything was covered. So it was, it was more just getting to New Zealand. Um, I think the New Zealand uh, FA may have actually paid some money for that as well. But certainly in New Zealand, it was a most fascinating way that they organised it. The New Zealand Football Association ran, was the overall organiser and, and made sure that the uh, squad would travel from point A to point B. Upon arrival in each of the centres, the Centre Football Association uh, would take over. And they would organise uh, the mayor to meet them. They would organise uh, a smoke concert, a pre-dinner, uh, sorry, pre-match dinner, a post-match dinner, uh, special tours to say uh, visit. Um, well, some of the weird places that they travel were like mental hospitals and uh, and others, other other sorts of things like that. So they they but but. It was all organised in a very regimented fashion, whereby the, the, the New Zealand FA made sure that the players got from, say, Christchurch to Dunedin or from Wellington to Auckland or wherever. So they made sure that that occurred, but that was all that they were covering. The, the local associations would pick up the rest of the, the, the slack. Uh, I know in Greymouth, in the uh, west coast of the South Island, when the players arrived by train from Christchurch, um, there was a band who then played them all the way to the hotel. So you had these sort of things in the, in, in the smaller provinces, the smaller towns, which, which added a lot, of, uh, a lot of fun to the players. But, of course, when you had that sort of thing, you, you, it was, as I said, quite regimented, and the players sort of got a bit tired of that. And by the time towards the end of the tour, they actually took off some time when they were in Hamilton and travelled out to Rotorua uh, for a couple of days away from everything so that they could do whatever they wanted to. So it it it, it seemed like a good idea, but, of course, it, it just became too much for the players to follow the same rigmarole at every single venue. And I, I would presume because it was a fairly unique tour, unique event, at that time, there would have been a lot of interest. So the games, I would suspect, were really well attended. Oh, certainly, yes, certainly. And, and the crowds actually grew from from uh, Dunedin to Wellington and then to uh, Auckland. So Auckland had the largest crowd. It was quite sizable. I can't remember the total, but it was it was a fairly large amount. So about fifteen or seventeen thousand at least. So which was quite a lot in those days, as you can imagine. The other thing I'm, I'm wondering whether you unearthed is, you know, we, we all know what goes on store, tour stays on tour. And I just wonder what, whether back in those days there were any sort of like scandals or, or misbehaviours that actually made the press or you uncovered while you were writing the book. 
Um, well, I wish there was. It would certainly add a bit more colour to the book. Uh, certainly, we, we didn't find anything in the Australian tour to New Zealand. The New Zealanders, when they came here in 23, um, they, there's nothing specific, but there seemed to be in a, a bit of a hint of something happen, having happened in Queensland. But, but generally, nothing more than that. No, I mean, you you mentioned, obviously, that the ashes have gone missing. Do you see any possibility of kind of to reinvigorate that so that when Australia does play New Zealand again, they could actually play for that trophy once more, even if it was a new trophy? It would be a very good idea. Whether it happens, that's up to the uh, FA and the the New Zealand FA. Um, But... uh, it would be nice for there to have been a, a match between Australia and New Zealand at the moment, but I, I haven't heard anything about that to celebrate this this momentous event of, of the centenary, but I certainly haven't heard any about it. And there's still plenty of time this year. Uh, if, if Australia qualifies, and one always hopes that Australia will qualify for the World Cup, then, then when they come back there might be uh, time for, us, for a match to occur between the two countries. No, it'd be a good friendly. And, I mean, even if they don't qualify for the World Cup, then there's even more time for them to play. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> well, look, Nick, it's been great catching up with you. I wish you all the best with the book now. I know Fair Play Publishing are the ones you can buy online from them. Is it going to be on sale as well in bookshops around Australia? Yes, it'll be on sale at all all good bookshops throughout the no, well, look, and, thank and you Trevor, very much to you and Trevor for uh, actually putting the book together and recording this bit of history, and I hope it sells really well. Thank you very much for having me on. Hi, this is Ian Healy, and you're listening to This Is Not The Footy Show. Well, that was Nick Gort, one of the co-authors of Burning Ambition. And, uh, John, I think it's really interesting that, obviously, there were so many things about that. The fact that they had the ashes, and I love the fact that it was uh, the ashes of two cigars. It sort of shows of a different time and a different era that that's what they were playing for. But it's kind of sad in a way that, you know, we probably won't see Australia and New Zealand playing each other this year, especially as it's a centenary year. Yeah, I would have thought that that would have been high on the list of we should we should celebrate these things for the FFA. Oh wow, we, here's a great legacy that we can promote and show how intrinsic this game is to Australian culture. Absolutely, and I mean we were saying in that interview, obviously it was as I mentioned before the World Cup qualifiers. New Zealand unfortunately haven't qualified. Australia has. Why can't they play a friendly before? You would think now there is an opportunity there. But it's in the hands of the FA, I suppose. FA or FA? well, they've no, they're football association now. Oh. No, the football the federation fo- is gone. It's so football, yes, football, football Australia. It is now. Oh, okay. Sorry, I'm not football association. That's England, but yeah, yeah they're just football, football Australia. Australia. But the other thing that I thought was interesting in that, John, was the fact that they were the first international players to ever wear numbers on their shirts. Now, I, w- I found some details on that. So, apparently, exper- experiments with numbered shirts uh, created in 1928. In, this was in England. On the 25th of August, 1928, Arsenal against Chelsea, they wore numbers. And the Wednesday 
as they were then, which is now Sheffield Wednesday, against Swansea Town. They were the first two teams in England to ever wear numbered shirts. And in 1933, it was the first ever FA Cup final where numbered shirts were worn. But you'll love this one. Everton, who were in the final, wore numbers 1 to 11, and Manchester City wore 12 to 22. <laughs> and, of course, there were no substitutes in those days. So, yeah, they wore the numbers. So it was 1 to 22 across both sides. And uh, the English League, all teams in the 1939-40 season um, had numbers on their shirts and only three games in 1940 in the Scottish League had their numbers on their shirts. But just to show how far ahead Australia and New Zealand were, the first time that England ever wore numbers on their shirts was in a match against Germany on the 14th of May 1938. Wow. And England won that game 6-3. That's a great little slice of history. See, once again, leading the, leading the world, us poor little Aussies and New Zealanders down at the arse end of the globe. Yeah, but nobody knew they were here. <laughs> but isn't that... That just shows you why it actually is important that Australian football celebrate this moment and let people know about this legacy in the history. I didn't know that. Absolutely. What a great little piece of history. That yeah, is. and I've got a copy of the book. Oh, I haven't actually read it yet, but it looks fantastic. So, uh, once again, if you want to get it, Burning Ambition, the centenary of Australian New Zealand football ashes, and it's published by Fair Play Publishing. Uh, yeah, Fair Play Publishing, and you can go to their website and uh, order a copy online. Oh, great! So, what are you going to talk about now? Well, let's keep talking about World Cups, but not not just football World Cups. What is the what is the future for World Cups? Considering now there's a plethora of international sport being played, and we just seem to find administrators just keep pumping international sport into us as much as that we can. Does the gloss go off World Cups? I mean, look at Australia is currently playing Sri Lanka in cricket. We got three variations of the game going on practically at the same time. T20 straight into 50 overs and at the same time they're playing an Australia A four-day game. It's how much, how much international sport can we take before it's, it really does lose its gloss? And like 48 teams at a World Cup, how long is that going to take? Is that, is that a two-month tournament? That's just going over the top and people will lose interest. Uh, I think World Cups, yeah, I agree with you, you've got to be careful. I think cricket's got it horribly wrong. I think they just need to have the one-day International World Cup. That's always the original one. I don't give a monkeys about the T20 World Cup. To me, that means absolutely nothing because I don't watch the game anyway <laughs> and I just don't like it. It is fast food cricket. You don't, I don't think, have to be, in fact, that brilliant to play it. A lot of luck involved. Oh, uh, tremendous amount of luck. Yeah. And if you're going to bring the boundaries in as far as you are, well, big surprise you hit so many sixes. Come on, seriously. But I think you've got to be careful with it. And, uh, and I, I did wonder, because it's very interesting if you look, John, there weren't too many World Cups before the 1970s. And the Olympic no. Games were the pinnacle at that point. And then, of course, the Olympic Games were forced to go professionally, you know, uh, Barcelona in 92. And But then since then, the World Cups in every sport have become really big. Even if you look at the World Athletics Championships, now are huge when they didn't exist back in the 70s. So I think there's a place for both, but I think the sports have to decide which is the most important. Is it the World Cup 
or is it the Olympic Games? And I think that this is my personal view is cricket has done itself a disservice by having a World Cup for T20. I think, it, you know, it's now, as you say, you've got three forms of international. When you go, you, when you look at someone, are you going to go, well, you're an international cricketer. What, what sport did you, were you a one day? Were you a test player or were you in that Mickey Mouse game called T20? And I mean, to me, test and one day, as I show respect, T20, I couldn't give a monkey's vest. <laughs> Fair enough. But w- what's the point of all this international sport? It's money, isn't it? It's that's all the thing that's driving it. They right. think they're going to attract new sponsors. It's going to give more TV, but the thing is, the TV pot is shrinking, and it also, as we're seeing, people are not watching TV. There's now so many platforms on which, and this is why we've seen it with the A League this year. No one knows where the games are. No one knows how to watch them. And if you spread it out too much, and I think this is where a lot of sports have got it horribly, horribly wrong by trying to do their own stuff and trying to give every game, live stream every game to everybody. And it's people don't necessarily want that. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting that in this era where more and more platforms are available and there's more and more options and more and more choices, it still comes down to free-to-air. Yeah. I mean, sports still crave... Free-to-air coverage. Absolutely. And this is where some of the sporting associations are getting it wrong. If you're going to try and make people pay to watch semi-professional or amateur sport, and you're going to try and monetize it, you're going to try and make money out of it, then you've got rocks in your head. It is never going to happen. Well, it's something I have a problem with in, in hockey is that there seems to be this drive that every game in every grade, we've got to put cameras up at our, our club so that we can live stream. It's no good live streaming crap. And and that's not just the quality of the game being played. That's the quality of the broadcast. And it's no good broadcasting sport without a commentator. It, it's just useless. It has no context. Yeah, absolutely not. And especially if you're just flipping, oh, there's a game between two teams I don't really know from, but I'm interested to see how it goes. You're going to turn off real quick because you don't know who the players are. You're getting no knowledge of the game whatsoever. It's just people running. I can walk down the park and watch people running around. That's not an issue. And we, we spend so much time and resources on, on this idea that every game, everybody's got to be able to see every game. No, we don't. Save, save your money and make the best possible production you can of as few games. You know, so, like. I've been saying this for a long time with the A-League. I think where they made a massive mistake with Paramount and Channel 10 is the A-League has declined in standard, in my opinion. And therefore now, most of the games each weekend are not that great. So therefore, why not pick a match of the week and do exactly what you're saying? Make it an absolute buzzer where you've got everything, it's bells, whistles, and the production is first class, rather than showing games that... And then the teams will want to strive to be the match of the week, and people will watch it, and your viewing figures will go up. But I also don't understand this desire that everybody's got, that we all know that you create a website... You have to keep your website up to date. Now people want to create apps. They want to have their own broadcast platform. Do they realize how much work? And if you don't propagate that with information that is current, then you immediately lose those people that have signed up for it because they'll go and get that information somewhere else. Now, when we had David Mitchell on talking about brand stuff on this one of the podcasts, if you remember, he was saying how your Manchester United's, all of these have so many staff that work 24 hours a day to respond to all the posts and comments, and they're trained 
to comment in a way that it looks like it's one person. Now, how many sporting associations are going to do that? None. They don't have the money. Exactly. So why go down that path? Yeah, look, uh, certainly you see a lot of the time someone has a great idea and oh, and suddenly the focus becomes, let's say, let's get a turf for our club and, and oh, let's get a turf and you get um, tunnel vision. Let's get the turf. Let's get the turf. Let's get the turf. And that becomes everything. And your club gets the turf. Yeah. That's when the hard work starts. The hard work is not getting the turf. The hard work is once you've got the turf, what do you do? How do you manage it? What's involved? You know, all those other, how much debt are we going to have to carry to replace it? The, the, the actual surface, all this sort of stuff comes up. And very often people think the good idea and the initial good idea is enough. And we've, oh, we've done it now. And that's what happened. No, well, yeah, you've done it. Work starts now. And that's exactly like all of these apps and all of this stuff is, oh, it's a good idea, but have you thought it through? Okay, we've got this app. Okay, you're going to need three people working on it every day to keep it up to date. Yep. You're going to need the backroom guy that loads it all up and makes sure that the content goes up. You're going to need the people creating the content. Then you're going to need the research. You're looking, you start then looking you need at written seven or eight content, people. video content, you, audio content. Yeah, you start looking at at least seven or eight people have got to be employed full time to yeah. manage it. And that's probably on a roster because, as you say, when you're an international sport, it's going on around the clock. It's not, oh, it's nine o'clock in Luzanne, so we'll, we'll start doing our, our app today and then we'll go knock off at five o'clock and nothing will change until we all come back at nine o'clock the next morning. Uh-uh, that's not the way it works. But also because you've got to look, your fans aren't now just a local fan. They're no. global fans. And so they are on different time zones. And with the internet, they've got access whenever they want it. And this is the key thing. People now want sport when they want it, not when you dictate the game will be. But we've talked about football, John, and I found this quote that I want to finish with on, on this day. We say how, you know, today footballers roll around a little bit. And Nat Lofthouse, who is a famous England footballer, played for Bolton in England. And I found this quote from him, and I just thought it was brilliant to end the show with. He goes, in my day, there were plenty of footballers around the world who would kick your bollocks off. The difference was, at the end of play, they would shake your hand and help you go look for them. See ya. We'll be back next week.